everyone. This is Rakaya Lennon, Editor-in-Chief of The Bell Ringer. Welcome to another episode of Chiming In, a production of Bell Ringer Phoenix Media. Today I am joined by a special guest visiting us all the way from the University of Montana, Dr. Joel Iverson. Iverson is a professor in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Montana. His work spans several areas, including organizational communication, health communication, risk and crisis communication, just to name a few. But for now, Iverson is here to share some information with us specifically about crisis communication. We'll discuss the impact that it has, how it affects us, as well as how practitioners are working to improve the way they relay these messages. So thank you, Dr. Iverson, for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. And welcome to Augusta University. Thanks. Is this your first time in Augusta? It is my first time in Augusta. I've been to Atlanta, Athens, and outside of Atlanta to Emory University in the past, but never to Augusta. Oh, welcome to Augusta as well. Yeah, thank you. It's beautiful. And how are things in Montana? You know, it is winter, though we don't have a lot of snow. Um, The ski resorts haven't been able to open Uh until recently, but yeah, it's fine. It's winter. Some days are colder than others, but it's not too bad. And it's in the mountains, so it's real pretty. Mm -hmm. That sounds beautiful. I will have some snow here, but... I don't know if we'll be getting. <laughs> yeah, not a lot, not as much snow in oh, Augusta. Yeah. So we'll get right into it. So for those who don't know, what exactly is crisis communication? Crisis communication is really studying how we should be responding during a crisis. A lot of what happens, whether it's an organizational crisis, such as um, Facebook, you know, now X being in trouble or Meta, sorry, Meta yeah. being in trouble um, with, you know, with members uh, there in the state of Georgia, there was the Peanut Corporation of America who intentionally sold um, tainted peanut butter and some people died, um, accidental things that happened for organizations or large-scale disasters. How you communicate can actually save lives. It can make the response better. It can help organizations recover more quickly from having a crisis. So how you communicate can save lives. It can save jobs. And our natural tendency as people is to close up, to overly reassure people in moments of crisis. And the natural human tendency doesn't really work very well in crisis response. So we help people understand what they should do and practice it so that when it comes time for there to be, when they have a crisis, Mm -hmm. that they are ready to have a more effective response. Mm -hmm. And that's really important too. And it's something that I don't think people often think about, you know, when a situation as big as that arises and then, you know, there's so much work that goes into relaying those messages. Right. You know, like we all experienced uh, the pandemic, Mm -hmm. right. Um, And with COVID-19 and that was, a moment where a lot of organizations had to respond. The public has a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear, and a lot of confusion. So clearly messaging in as you know as a response to that and learning about what is happening and helping people understand what's happening is an important part of that. Mm-hmm. And I know you mentioned this just a few moments ago, but how exactly is crisis communication used and what are the like real life examples that people often 
mention in addition to the ones that you just mentioned, but mentioned when speaking about crisis communication. Yeah, when we think about crisis communication, you know, it can be any, you know, a, a crisis is defined as having a surprise. There's some element of surprise. We mm-hmm. didn't expect it to happen. There's a threat of some sort to people's lives or li- livelihood or reputation of an organization and a real short response time, a need to respond quickly. And so thinking about that as crises, there are a lot of examples throughout history. Um, More recently, you know, large ones from the pandemic, the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, um, disaster responses with hurricanes or storms or floods. Mm -hmm. All of those are examples where it's important to communicate clearly because the public wants to know Mm -hmm. and needs to know what's happening and the organization or, you know, there's news reports for an organization that come out and they really need to under, help the public understand what is happening, what they can do, what they shouldn't do as well. Mm. And I know you've done work in research about crisis communication. So can you tell me a little bit about the work and the research that you've done as it relates to this topic? Yeah. Uh, more recently, uh, the project before... Uh, pre-pandemic was working with the agricultural industry. And I was part of a team across the U.S. that worked on biosecurity, which is how do you keep disease from spreading? Like now there's an outbreak of high pathogenic avian influenza. Are you here of bird flu, but just among birds Mm -hmm. that is causing them to have to cull herds and and make those choices, we are trying to educate the producers in how to engage in good practices to keep disease from spreading. And so we worked really on the human side. The animals don't really care what, you know, whether or not disease is spreading or people, you know, feed is going from one place to another, Mm -hmm. but it's a human activity that needs to change in order to help save the industry or to save money and to, you know, reduce animal suffering. So we worked on that project for a number of years in changing human behavior around biosecurity. And then now since the pandemic, I've been working with the U.S. Forest Service looking at wildland firefighting. And so we study wildland firefighting for the public messaging to help people understand what they can do, as well as what is realistic to expect about wildfires. We also worked on the actual crisis communication internally to wildland firefighters about best protocols, practices during the pandemic for fighting wildfires. Mm -hmm. And I know you mentioned the wildfires. Now, for those who don't necessarily know what a wildfire is, other than like, hey, a wildfire is when (laughs) trees catch on fire in a forest. What What is that exactly for people who might not know the effect that it actually has and I guess the response it has in nature and like what it actually does. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, A wildfire or wildland fire can be a grass fire, prairie fire. It is when there is a natural or human caused ignition in what we would call the wildlands, right? Whether that's private or federally or state controlled forests or prairie Mm -hmm. and, um, and then it spreads either within that area, and it's a wildfire, or 
it can at times spread into the communities. And, you know, those tend to make the news. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people do get confused with fire, with wildfires compared to other kinds of fire, like the Maui fire that just happened this last year, mm-hmm. where a lot of homes were destroyed, lives were lost. Technically, that was not a wildfire. That mm-hmm. was a, and people would call it an urban conflagration. They haven't really decided on a term, but it started within the town and but it spread across multiple homes so in that way it looks like a wildfire but it didn't start on wild lands so Mm -hmm. so we usually try to distinguish between that and what is the message that you are you know helping to give about you know wildfires with your work yeah well there's a long history of the forest service and other agencies um, over a hundred years ago, trying to stop wildfires from destroying timber, from destroying communities. And they've really taken that on and it really became militarized. And we would call that the war on fire. But the wildfire science over the last 30 years has shown that a lot of these landscapes need fire. Mm-hmm. It has been a part, you know, throughout history, fires have happened, lightning ignitions before humans were there. And for over 10,000 years, humans have been cultivating this landscape with fire, right? Indigenous, um, indigenous communities have utilized fire in a useful way. But with our war on fire, we were putting out every fire as quickly as possible, which created a larger undergrowth, meaning that when fire happens, there's more fuel. It mm-hmm. takes the fire up to the top of the trees and then it starts throwing embers for miles and you get huge fires like some of those that we see in California and other parts of the West over the last couple of years. And that's really interesting to think about because I don't know if many people know that or would know that really. Yeah. So we try to think about it as um, understanding wildfire as a part of the wildlands. And for me, I I didn't know that much about wildfire until I started working with the Forest Service. I mean, I lived in Missoula, Montana, where we get smoke. There have been fires that are close, but, you know, never a direct threat. So when I started working with the wildfire scientists from the Forest Service, what I really found, what I learned was that wildfire is natural. It is something that happens from lightning strikes and some from human cause, a lot of them for that but it is a natural process that the ecosystem needs. And so we're trying to shift that understanding. And for me, what helped me understand it was the idea of bears. So I live in Missoula. In the fall, before bears hibernate, if there's not a lot of food supply up in the mountains, if it's a drier year, they will come into town at night and take in people's garbage to find food Uh or take apples out of their (laughs) apple tree. And I have video of you know, black bears wandering by my front door and they would get into the garbage and drag it into my yard and have a picnic there at night. Right. And I would have to clean up the mess. So the bear is just being a bear. Yeah. And, you know, I needed to put my garbage in the garage and when I keep my garbage in the garage, no bears. Right. My neighbor leaves his garbage out The bears go in the middle of the night. They take out his garbage. They drag it to my yard because apparently I have a better picnic spot. Right. And and they tear it up right there and get into it for food. So it's really not about the bears. They're part of the wildland. It's part of the 
ecosystem we live in. The problem is my behavior. And similarly, for wildfire, the question that we want to ask communities and the question that we want the public land and private landowners to think about is what will wildfire find when it gets here? There's a lot that can be done for home hardening. There's good research about that. If you look at some of those large fires or even the Maui fire, there was that miracle house that survived. And if you look at the structure of the house and what's around it, it's really no miracle at all. It was uh, built out of less flammable material. It didn't have a lot of fuel sources near the house. And it meets all the criteria that the experts have developed about home hardening for wildfire. Mm-hmm. Also thinking about how we get fire on the landscape to keep those small fuels small and uh, instead of letting it get overgrown so that the fire goes up to the top of the trees, it stays low and slow. All of that work can be done because wildfire is there. And then when wildfire comes, it you know is something that can be dealt with if it gets close to our values at risk, like structures, uh, power lines, mm-hmm. cell towers, right? Uh, but... Otherwise, it's a natural process. So helping to shift their understanding from the war on fire, where fire is the problem. And if there's a fire, it's automatically a problem to understanding that under certain conditions in a lot of places, fire actually belongs. Mm -hmm. And, And that's a really hard shift to make. And it's going to take a long time. But that's what we're working on. And that leads me to my next question, which is, you know, like this can be in general, but what are some issues or common issues that surround, you know, communicating crises? Um, I think the biggest, I would say the two things are, one is to fight the natural tendency to withdraw or over-reassure and not Mm -hmm. communicate. And the, you know, the second one is there is a fear of panic. So a lot of times people don't want to communicate what's happening. But the research over the decades has shown that people don't panic from bad news. People Mm -hmm. panic when they can no longer trust their resources, when they Mm -hmm. can no longer trust what they're hearing. So being honest and open, communicating uncertainty when you have it is critical um, to help people and to give them something they can do, right? Otherwise, um, if you withhold information, other people will fill that void Uh, Media will find people to talk to about it, Mm -hmm. and it may not be accurate, it may not be helpful, and it may not be your message that you want the public to have. So, you know, each of those are opportunities to build trust. But that's those are the number one things to do is to really plan that out, think about messages, have a plan, and when a crisis happens, to own it and to move forward, but help the public understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. And that also leads me to ask, what are some common misconceptions about crisis communication? Um, I think a lot of some people would see it as spin, right? The effort is to spin a message to make everybody look better than um, perhaps reality would allow. And you really can't do that, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's one of the misconceptions. The other one is that fear of panic that people tend not to panic until, you know, a fire is imminent and it's right at their doorstep, people can handle bad news. Um, I'd say the final thing is, is that the words we choose matters, right? The right words at the right time can save lives. And a lot of times people 
really avoid communicating when there's a crisis, when really what they need to do is engage. And I'm sure that's something that people might look back at when they're examining certain situations. Like, what if this was said, this choice of words was said, or these choice of words were said instead of this? Or what if it was said earlier or later? I'm sure that's something that, you know, yeah. practitioners might look at. Absolutely. Um, in, you know, if you think about organizations, you think about communities, you know, you if you aren't in a crisis, you're in the pre-crisis mode, and that's a great place to plan. You've had a crisis, and after there's a recovery time or post-crisis time where you can engage in recovery, or it's even an opportunity to make changes, right, that you could you may have wanted to make before or hadn't thought of. And in those moments, we can also learn. We can vicariously learn, meaning we can learn from others and watching other crises and and improve the way we respond to crises. It's how we came up with the phrase, and not me, but <laughs> how um, experts came up with the phrase shelter in place. Um, to give people a sense of something to do is really important. It helps people deal with the stress and uncertainty of a crisis. And so when a storm is impending, um, one of the messages might be shelter in place. The message used to be don't do anything, just stay at home. And then people feel like they aren't doing anything when they really are. What they're doing is they're staying in a safe place and being smart about how they're responding to the crisis. And so that phrase shelter in place really helps them um, have a more appropriate response. Hmm, that's really thoughtful and something I don't think people might have thought about. Right. <laughs> so I guess, how has crisis communication changed or evolved over the years? We have things like social media and all that kind of stuff that wasn't there 30 or something years ago. So how has that kind of changed the way um, crisis communication is done? Um, I think what it's really done, I mean, it's made significant changes, right? That's mm-hmm. a really important question. And understanding even the evolution of social media within the last few years, what you have is a situation where you, an organization or a news agency can't control the message the way they used to be able to, that there are going to be multiple messages, multiple perspectives out there. And what you want to do is to be proactive. So, for example, the um, the CDC has their motto is be first be right, be credible, right? They want to make sure that they are getting the message out clearly. They didn't always do that perfectly in the pandemic, uh, but you know there were complicated messages and high uncertainty. But really, you have to understand that people are going to seek information. It may not be from you. So what you want to make sure is you have your message out there very clearly and that it's accessible so that people can download that, the research, shows a lot of what is retweeted or I don't know, re-X'd if we want to call it that now, right? With the new name is, um, is information from credible sources being resent. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's really important. Um, working to counter false messages, working to have that alternate message out there is really important. So, you went from having fewer messages out in the public domain to having a whole lot of messages in the public domain. So reaching those audiences is even more critical. Mm -hmm. And I can understand that that can be a challenge too, to get your voice heard out there amongst so many others. Yes, absolutely true, right? Mm -hmm. How do you get, 
and understand that you can't completely control that. And, you know, other messages are going to come out. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that leads me to my final question, which is what should the public um, and since we're here at a university, so specifically the academic community and students, what should they know about crisis communication? I think for um, for people in their lives to know that we will all probably experience crises of different levels and that thinking about what they can do, thinking about what um, what message should be out there for others to do is important to listen, evaluate the situation, clearly think about what your risks are and evaluate those messages. You know, look for those messages that clearly help you find what well, we would talk about it as efficacy. What can you do in that process? I think the second thing is as you go forward in life and you have crises, there is a threat component to a crisis, but there's also an opportunity, right? The the Mandarin symbol for crisis has sort of a version of threat and opportunity in its symbol that after a crisis or once you've gotten through a crisis, that is an opportunity to learn, it's an opportunity to reflect, and it's an opportunity to engage in change. And so, you know, the, the crises aren't great, they're going to happen, but how can we learn from that and move forward? Right. And that's all very helpful to keep in mind. And it's a great thing for people to know about as well, like I mentioned earlier, because people might not think about it. So hopefully they, you know, learn what crisis communication is and take that into consideration when they're receiving messages. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, you know, it's very important to not engage in snapback that, you know, I just want to get back to the way things were. Well, what did part of how things were lead to that crisis? Mm -hmm. And so what can you do differently moving forward to engage in? We would call it renewal, you know, not just recovery, but renewal. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks again, Dr. Iverson, for coming on the show today. Um, we appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. This is great. <laughs> awesome. And thank you for listening. Once again, Chiming In is a production of Bellringer Phoenix Media. It is produced at the TVC Lab on the Somerville campus of Augusta University. Jasmine Garcia is the producer and lab coordinator. Comments mentioned are those of the host and panelists, not Augusta University. Be sure to find us at www.aubellringer.com to hear from more guests. This is Rakaya Lennon, hoping you'll chime in too. Join us next time and have a great day.